you may be a high school college student or a parent of a high school or college student sitting in classrooms being taught things about the theory of evolution and trying to understand what's true, what's false. How do I understand this? What if I hold to something like intelligent design, creationism? Uh, how do I respond? How do I talk to my classmates, my friends, my teachers, or my professor about it? So here trying to have this conversation to help you better engage with scientific ideas, with faith, science ideas, and addressing questions on intelligent design and evolution uh, is the conversation today. My name is Ryan Pauly. This is Think Well, the show to train you and help you think well about the Christian and faith and engage the culture well. And joining me is Dr. Casey Luskin. Dr. Casey Luskin has graduate degrees in both um, geology and law. He's a practicing attorney and a geologist. Uh, he works as the associate director of science for science Center for Science uh, with the Discovery Institute, and as, as I said, a practicing lawyer, and really kind of focusing that part of his job on um, evolution, education, and public schools, and defending academic freedom for scientists who face discrimination because of their support for intelligent design. So we're going to be talking about this book that came out a little while ago that he helped uh, co-author with William Densky and Joseph Holdham, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. Man, if you have science and faith questions, this has 30-plus authors writing on every single type of question you could imagine regarding the science and faith conversation. It is a great, great resource to have. So Casey, thanks for coming on the show and helping us understand this kind of cultural conversation regarding science and faith. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. I've been looking forward to this and I apologize. I'm not in uh, top shape today. I'm actually on the sort of the downward slope of getting over COVID and I'm also preparing to fly out for about 40 days and a couple days here uh, to go travel and speak internationally. So thankfully, I'm, I'm pretty much over my symptoms now. So I'm, I think I'm going to be good to travel, but still a little bit fatigued. So hopefully I won't have any COVID brain, but uh, looking forward <laughs> to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you taking this time with me. And, you know, this is horrible timing on my part because we met a year ago at Summit Ministries, which I'm planning to fly out on Friday for Summit. Uh, and I'll be there again for two weeks. And it's taken me a year to get back and uh book this interview with you. Uh, and so, of course, I book it right as you're getting over COVID and about to travel. So I do appreciate you taking the time to talk through this with us. So um, one of the things I want to talk with you about and, and kind of my hope is, is as I'm trying to help people be able to engage the culture, I think you ha have a lot of experience in this as you are a scientist, a geologist, as well as a practicing lawyer and helping kind of uh, defend, you know, intelligent design in the classroom with evolution, all that kind of stuff. I think there's a lot of experience that you bring as far as what this looks like at a practical level, the conversations and what's happening, uh, going on in culture. So let's kind of maybe start, and that's where I want to go, but let's start with some definitions. So uh, how would you kind of define intelligent design? What is intelligent design? Sure. So intelligent design is a scientific theory which holds that many aspects of life in the universe are best explained by an intelligent cause. Uh, and we often will say it's, they're best explained by an intelligent cause uh, compared to other potential explanations, such as an unguided mechanism like natural selection. And the reason why intelligent design is the best explanation is because we find features in nature which in our experience have the kind of information and complexity which only comes from intelligence, okay? So let me give you an example of what we're talking about. Um, when we look at the heart of life today, what do we find? 
What we find that in our DNA is a language-based code. We see that the nucleotide bases arranged along the backbone of the DNA molecule are arranged in very particular sequences and orders. And these actually form uh, commands and codes that are very much like a computer language, which is then read and interpreted by our cellular machinery. Um, These commands and codes are literally read and interpreted by machines in the cell, much like the way computer code is read and interpreted by machinery in your computer. And then this sort of this language-based code that is in our DNA is being processed through computer-like information processing, and the output of this process is machines. Our cells are actually full of micromolecular machines that are doing all kinds of important uh, functions, including energy production, uh, waste disposal, transportation, recycling, um, creating protective barriers that let certain things in and keep harmful things out. Uh, there's all kinds of machines running around your cells performing uh, vital functions that you need to be able to perform. Um, but the whole point is this. What we see at the heart of life is language-based code, computer-like information processing, and machines. But where in our experience do these sorts of things come from? Where do we see language-based code coming from in our experience? Where does computer information processing come from in our experience? Where do machines come from in all of our experience? These things come only from intelligence. So intelligent design is the best explanation for the presence of language-based computer code-like code in our DNA, computer-like information processing that goes on in our cells, and machines that are present in our cells. And I think that that provides a really powerful, positive argument for design because we're finding in biology the kind of information and complexity which in our experience comes only from intelligence. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm thinking as you're kind of discussing there, you know, a lot of objections that I've heard kind of raised against uh, intelligent design. So what about like one of someone saying, you know, this is just kind of this God of the gap. So we don't know how the complexity got there. So for you to input designer, you to input God uh, that just gives science more time and they'll figure it out. So I would say that what I just described is actually the opposite of a God of the gaps argument. The God of the gaps argument says that we're ignorant about where, you know, how certain things happen or the way certain things work or where certain things come from. And we just sort of substitute God for our ignorance, okay? Our, our lack of knowledge about the way the world works. In the case of intelligent design, uh, first of all, I'm not necessarily making an argument here for God. I am a Christian. I do believe that God, the designer, is the God of the Bible. And I'm very quick to tell people where I'm coming from, whether I'm speaking to a Christian audience or a secular audience or a mixed audience or whatever. I think it's important to just be upfront about where you're coming from. But that's my own personal religious belief. The theory of intelligent design is not telling us necessarily who the designer is. So let's just give a hypothetical example. The information in our DNA that is you know, written in a language-based code, encoding these molecular machines, that information might be screaming out, I need an intelligent cause. But it's not, that information doesn't say made by Yahweh or made by Allah or made by Buddha or made by Yoda or made by whoever you might think the designer is. All it's saying is this is an information-rich code which points to the need for an intelligent cause. And so if I were to go and say that, oh, I believe that the the, the, the designer is the God of the Bible, that's fine, I can say that, but now I'm going beyond what the scientific evidence can say. And so I'm not claiming, nor do ID theorists ever claim, and, and at least if they understand what ID is, they don't claim that the theory of intelligent design can actually tell us who the designer is. All the theory of intelligent design can do is tell us that there's evidence for an intelligent cause. 
as far as the designer goes. It's not going to go further and specify for you who the designer is. So I'm trying, as far as the science goes, I'm trying to respect the limits of science. And I'm not claiming that we can determine through the theory of intelligent design, through science, who the designer is. If you want to make an argument that the God of the Bible is the designer, that's fine. But I'm going to make, I'm going to use evidence and arguments from fields outside of science, outside of intelligent design, you know, from history and philosophy and theology, et cetera. I'm not going to use intelligent design if I'm going to try to persuade you that the God of the Bible is a designer because the scientific evidence simply doesn't tell us who the designer is. But let's now get back to that positive argument. Why is it not a quote unquote gaps based argument? Well, the reason why is, again, a God of the gaps argument substitutes our lack of knowledge for where things come from and says, oh, it must be God. It must be whatever. Intelligent design does the opposite. We know from our experience where things like language-based digital code, computer-like information processing, or machines. We know where these kinds of things come from. In our experience, they come only from intelligence. So rather than using our ignorance or trying to say we don't know where these things come from, therefore I'm just going to say, oh, God did it, I'm actually saying, no, we do know based upon our experience where these things come from. And all of our experience with the origin of a language-based code, of computer-like information processing, the origin of machines, and all of our experience with the origin of those things, it always invariably traces back to a mind or a personal agent. And so intelligent design is basing our inference to design upon our knowledge of the cause and effect structure of the world and our knowledge that certain types of information and complexity only come from intelligence. So I I appreciate the God of the Gaps objection. I think it's often made in good faith, but it really is based upon a misunderstanding of the kind of argument that we're making here. We're not making an argument based upon what we don't know. We're making an argument based upon what we do know. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it seems almost similar. You know, it's like, you know, you, you have a, a murder scene, right? And you, you look at the evidence and it points to a suspect and it's like, well, you just kind of have suspect of the gaps. You have to find someone who did it. And therefore you're pointing at that person. It's like, no, we're not just like, I don't know who did it. It must've been Bob. Um, it's like, no, I have positive evidence that is best explained by an external person. This is not suicide. This is not death by natural causes. You don't get five bullet holes in the back of your back by natural causes. Uh, this points to a murder. And so there's actual design you know, things that we see uh, that look like, um, that, that, that point to that conclusion we're coming to. Now, and I, I want to yeah. add, Ryan, real quick, you know, like any scientific hypothesis or scientific conclusion, we always hold our conclusion tentatively, subject to future discoveries and future investigations. So, and this makes ID no different from any other scientific theory. We, we hold the conclusion tentatively. So we're always open to new ideas, new evidence, new explanations that might come up. And if those happen to explain the evidence better than uh, you know appealing to an intelligent cause, then that's fine. Then we'll go with that. But for now, the best explanation that we have for many of these features is intelligence. Yeah. Okay. So what you just said there, right there kind of brings up a a thought in my mind, because often with the God of the gaps argument, the claim is made like, well, you know, we didn't know where rain came from. We thought the gods were crying. And then we realized there's, you know, weather patterns and we didn't know uh, where lightning and thunder came from. We thought, you know, Thor or whatever, Zeus was angry and throwing down lightning bolts. And now we realize why there's lightning and thunder. And so often the examples given for the God of the gaps argument are these like super ancient 
2,000 years ago, we didn't understand why there were waves in the ocean and we thought Poseidon was upset uh, versus Poseidon was happy. Um, what about recently though? So, so it's like, okay, clearly 2,000 years ago, we didn't understand things and we've shown that these kind of supernatural explanations for what was happening in the world are ridiculous and we have filled that gap, so to speak, with a naturalistic explanation. Um, but are there like recent discoveries? So you say, you know, we hold our views tentatively. Are there discoveries in the last, you know, maybe since ideas started or since you've been really involved with ID, have there been things that we thought were from God's supernatural explanations that have been disproven and shown a natural cause? Or uh, is that gap shrinking as often claimed? Or actually is maybe the gap of, of des uh, where a designer is needed widening, if that makes sense? Sure. So look, I, I just reject gaps-based arguments of all kinds because they tend to assume what the answer is supposed to be. Okay. Yeah. And I don't want to make any assumptions. I want to let the data speak for itself. So I can think of many examples where over the last 20, 30, 40 years, science has made new discoveries that supported intelligent design. And I think that the evidence for intelligent design was expanding and growing. But the truth is, you know, scientists have to always be open to being overturned. So as an, a design theorist, I'm always open to the possibility that the evidence might turn out to support an evolutionary explanation. And intelligent design is not inherently against evolution being the best explanation in many cases, okay? I mean, what intelligent design is actually doing is it's expanding our explanatory toolkit. Most evolutionary scientists wants to limit our claims to strictly unguided natural material causes. And what ID says is, look, natural evolutionary mechanisms are fine. We can invoke those when they're the best explanation. I mean, look at antibiotic resistance. Of course, in those cases, we can see in real time that bacteria are evolving resistance to some kind of an antibiotic drug. Of course, natural selection is a real phenomenon at work in those environments, in those situations. And we can observe other situations at work around the world today where natural selection is a real cause that is actually, you know, at work and causing things to diversify. Okay, fine. In those cases, let's invoke now, you know, natural evolutionary mechanisms. ID has no problem with this. What ID is saying is that not that natural selections are never the explanation. It's saying that, you know, natural evolutionary explanations are necessarily always the explanation in, in every single case. But that's what the evolutionists are saying. They're essentially saying you have to invoke unguided evolutionary mechanisms in all cases, all the time, now and forevermore. Amen. And you have no intellectual options outside of that very restricted philosophical view that it has to be evolutionary explanations only all the time. And what ID is saying, let's open up ourselves to new possibilities, to the possibility of intelligence. So what I would say actually is far more common today in science, what is far more common than the quote unquote, God of the gaps explanation causing problems is that materialism of the gaps causes problems for science today. Far, far more often where evolutionary scientists insist that you are only allowed to invoke unguided evolutionary mechanisms. And then those explanations turn out to be wrong. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I think it's important to understand what, you know, the trend of the evidence, what's really going on uh, today in science is not that, you know, quote unquote, the God of the gaps is standing in the way of the progress of science. I think if anything, it is materialism of the gaps that is causing uh, problems today. I want to read to you, by the way, a quote from a Harvard uh, zoologist named Richard Lewinton. He passed away a few years ago. Um, he said, he basically acknowledged in an article he wrote that evolutionary biology today is committed to materialistic explanations regardless 
of what the evidence says. I want to read you this quote. And this is again, a Harvard, a leading scientist, a Harvard um, a zoologist named Richard Lewinton. He said, our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, moreover he says, moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So what's really going on today, Ryan, in the scientific community is that scientists are committing what I would call materialism of the gaps, where they assume that essentially unguided evolutionary mechanisms are the explanations in all cases, and they are committed to that view before they even come to the table and start looking at the evidence. And to me, this is what is holding back the progress of science, not invoking design when design is the best explanation based upon the evidence we have. Yeah. No, I think that's such an important point. And one that I try to stress so often with students is that we have to understand the worldviews that are at play regarding this conversation. It's not a Christianity versus science. Uh, I often say at my school, and it's like, I don't believe in Christianity. I just believe in science. It's like, well, hey, we teach we teach science at this school. Uh, we, believe, we believe in science too. Uh, but what's happening here is it's Christianity or supernaturalism versus naturalism, uh, that there's a worldview at play that is, that is shaping the way that we look at and evaluate what we... Uh, see as possible options. And if we're fair, if we can remove that worldview, kind of remove our bias, we should be able to have both options on the table. Is there a supernatural explanation or a natural one and follow the evidence where it leads? And so, you know, have you seen, um, uh, so kind of going back to that first question, have you seen, has there been an explanation in your in your mind in the last few years where it was for sure, it sure looked like it was a supernatural cause, there was a designer, there had to be a designer, and then we found a natural explanation for it by looking at better evidence or where you were proven wrong. You said, hey, if I am shown wrong, I'll follow the evidence where it leads. Has there been an example recently where you have kind of been proven wrong and had to follow the evidence away from a design a theory to more of a naturalistic explanation? There, there are certainly cases where we have said, hey, if we're proven wrong, we'll follow the evidence where it leads. Um, and we're open to being proven wrong. But I can't think of an example where ID made a bold prediction that then turned out to be wrong. Um, now, maybe I'm, I'm a little fuzzy brained right now. I'm, like I said, I had COVID <laughs> last week. I'm, I'm on the very, very tail end of it right now, but I'm still a fuzzy brain. So maybe there's something I'm forgetting. But let me give you a little example of, of for my own life, of an example where we were saying, look, we're open to being proven wrong, but then actually the, end, the evidence ended up vindicating ID. Um, I got involved with the ID debate when I was actually an undergraduate student at the University of California, San Diego, uh, back in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And at that time, uh, I started a student club there called the Intelligent Design and Evolution Awareness Club, or IDEA Club for short, 
where we tried to create a venue where students could actually have conversations about origins that were typically not allowed to take place in most of our science classes. UC San Diego is a huge science-focused school. It's a great school. I loved it there. But unfortunately, mo- you know, I took many, many science classes and the vast majority of them really just disallowed us from talking about things like evolution, intelligent design as a sort of a scientific debate. So um, at this club, we would always have dialogues. We would get, you know, we would invite, openly invite evolutionists to come, whether they were undergrads or grad students or even faculty. And we would often get hit over the head with one argument. That argument was basically junk DNA. This was in the late 90s, early 2000s, right around the time that the Human Genome Project came out and showed that, yeah, only about 2 to 3% of our genome is encoding proteins or, or, you know, sort of traditional genes encoding proteins. And people were saying, well, what's the other 97% of the genome doing? Why would a designer put all of this useless junk DNA in our genomes? And under an evolutionary perspective, there was just this assumption that if they didn't know what this DNA did, that it must be the result of millions of years of random evolutionary mutations producing garbage in our genomes that we don't need because it's not encoding proteins. And they would say, look, this is clearly a a, a spectacular refutation of intelligent design, all this non-coding junk DNA in our genomes. And UID people need to reckon with that. And what I would say is this, Ryan, I would say, look, if you guys are right, that actually, you know, 97 or something percent of our genomes turn out to be useless evolutionary genetic junk, then I would actually agree with you guys. I think that would refute intelligent design. Okay. I think that that would be a really powerful evidence against intelligent design. So I'll sort of take the premise of your argument and say, you've made a fair argument here. The problem is that at that time, and, and, you know, certainly at that time, we didn't know what that other 97% of our DNA was doing. They were assuming it was junk in the absence of evidence. This is, this is materialism of the gaps. You know, In the absence of evidence, we're going to assume that an evolutionary process did this and it's just evolutionary noise, evolutionary junk. All right. And what I would say in response is I would say, look, the reality is we've barely even begun to understand the non-protein coding parts of our genomes. So I think a more prudent scientific approach would be to let's wait and see. I mean, I'm open to being refuted here. If it turns out that, that it is in fact useless genetic garbage, then I'll grant you guys that I think this is a huge, you know, piece of evidence against intelligent design. Yeah. But if it turns out that, you know, ID would predict that it is functional because when intelligent agents make things, they tend to do things for a reason. They tend to make things for a purpose. So if, that if our genome really is the result of design, I would tend to say that um, it should, we would predict that, you know, by and large, it's going to have function. Okay. And so now what has happened over the last 10, 15 years. Well, in the, in the 2000s, there started to be, a, started as a slow trickle, but more and more papers started to come out discovering function for the quote unquote junk DNA. Um, and then by the late 2000s, there were hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of papers that had been published discovering function for the quote unquote junk DNA. In 2011, Jonathan Wells, uh, a pro ID biologist, wrote a, a book called The Myth of Junk DNA, where he cited hundreds and hundreds of papers finding evidence for junk DNA. But then in 2012, the dam broke open and there was a paper published in the journal Nature from a consortium of hundreds of scientists around the world called ENCODE. And what they found in that paper is that they had detected evidence for biochemical functionality for 80% of our genome. 
And they actually said the reason it was only 80% it was because they were only studying about 187 types of cells in the human body. And if they studied the, you know, certain aspects of our genome are only functional in certain types of cells at certain stages of the life cycle. So they predicted that as we study more and more cell types, that 80% would actually go up to 100%. Now, these were scientists who were not necessarily coming from an ID perspective. They were just trying to figure out how the genome works and what the data says. And they found that the data showed that, you know, that the genome was functional. And since then, there have just been, you know, untold numbers of papers finding function for quote-unquote junk DNA. In fact, a paper in Genome Biology and Evolution a few years ago said that, quote, the days of junk DNA are over, unquote. So there's been a huge paradigm shift in biology over the last 10, 20 years, which radically shows that um, that the, the quote-unquote junk DNA, the non-coding DNA in our genome actually has crucial functions. And by and large, what that, what that quote-unquote junk DNA is doing is it's actually regulating the protein coding DNA. So if you, if you think of building a house, you know, to build a house, you need things like brick, you need wood, you need nails, you have mortar, you need mortar. And that's all the things you need to build a house. But you can't just build a house just having brick and wood and, and nails and mortar. You also need a blueprint to tell you where to put the brick, where to put the wood, where to put the nails, where to put the mortar, and what order do you put them together? How do you build a, you know, put all these parts together in a useful way to actually build something that, that works? Well, in the same way, the junk DNA, the non-coding DNA, functions kind of like the blueprint for the protein-coding DNA, and that it is telling your cells when to produce certain proteins, how much to produce, when to stop producing them, how to respond to environmental cues. It's basically the, the blueprint is in the non-coding DNA, and it controls and regulates gene expression. That's the way biologists put it. So um, we found that the junk DNA is hugely important, and this is a spectacularly uh, fulfilled prediction because ID made this prediction prior to the discovery. And there are actually, I know of ID scientists who have done research helping to find function for junk DNA. A lot of other non-ID scientists did as well, but certainly ID scientists were part of it. So we have this opportunity where ID could have been proven wrong, we, we made a testable prediction. We said that we were open you know, to seeing what – we didn't know what the evidence was going to say. And it turned out that the evidence confirmed uh, the prediction of ID. And I think that this is an example of how ID actually does make good predictions and can function as a, as a successful science. Yeah, no, I think that's so helpful to hear. And I think it, you know, it does, as you say, kind of uh, shows that Ivy makes good predictions. I think it's also kind of maybe helpful in the sense of, you know, here's uh, an example of when, you know, uh, um, a naturalist or evolutionist kind of got something wrong, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, and then there's examples, as we mentioned, of religious people in the past of saying, well, the gods are crying or whatever, and they got it wrong. And so it's like, hey, let's, you know, let's, let's kind of focus in on what's happening now, right? It's not like, hey, you got something wrong, you know, 50 years ago. And I know that's not what you're doing here. You're showing a, a, a successful prediction of ID. Um, or, hey, religious people 2,000 years ago got something wrong. You're probably wrong now. It's like, well, hold on. Let's let's evaluate the evidence now. What is the best scientific evidence that we have now pointing to, and, and what does that say? Um, and so I think that this is helpful. Now, I, I do want to kind of switch a little bit into uh, kind of the, the cultural aspect of this because um, – you know, when I'm reading over your bio and it says, you know, hey, you you, you help, you know, kind of uh, as an attorney fight for uh, uh, academic uh, research freedom, studying, you know, those who study, research and teach on uh, intelligent design evolution type stuff. And I know that this conversation often gets kind of heated. Um, you know, I did a, a video on TikTok when I first started that platform a long time ago, um, uh, why I think evolution is false. And I got blasted. 
you know, and I mean, I could have put, I've written some other controversial things on there. I thought much more controversial and don't get that much of a response. Why is it that this conversation to come out and say, I think evolution is false. Why, why does it sometimes seem to get so much heat, so much attraction that makes people not want to say anything about it? Yeah. You know, there's this, there's this famous quote, um, from this Chinese paleontologist. And he said, in China, we can criticize Darwin, but not the government. But in America, you can criticize the government, but not Darwin. <laughs> and I think it's such a, such a great quote because this issue is such a hot topic. You get in so much trouble as soon as you start to criticize Darwin. Look, I mean, this gets into some complex sociology, as you said. And so, you know, I can't say that there's a one-size-fits-all answer to your question. All right. Yeah. Um, I think it's a very complex question, and I think there's a lot of reasons why Darwin is so controversial. But but I will say that you know, um, for a lot of people, um, the Darwinian account of the diversification of of species and essentially this what what it led to basically a materialistic view of biology that all of the history of life can be explained in purely unguided naturalistic terms that this is very, very important to a lot of people in our society today. It basically makes up, for them at least, it functions like a secular creation myth. So you are literally, you know, critiquing their account of the crea their creation myth. So a lot of people don't like that, all right? Because yeah. you're, you're critiquing something that's very core to their worldview. Now, I'm not saying these people, of course, I'm sure they believe it in good faith. They think there's good scientific evidence for it. Um, but I think that for some people, that's the reason. Now, that's not the only reason, and that's not true for everybody. Obviously, there are some folks out there who are Christians, who are theistic evolutionists, who believe in the sort of an evolutionary account of the history of life. Um, but, you know, let's set that aside for a minute. Let's just talk about scientists in general. Uh, why do scientists sometimes react very strongly when you could critique an evolutionary paradigm? Well, this actually is not so surprising when you think about the history of science and the sociology of science. Um the famous historian of science, Thomas Kuhn, said in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, he said, the word he used was intolerant. He said that scientists are often intolerant of new ideas that are challenging reigning paradigms, okay? So the fact that many scientists kind of put their guard up as soon as you start to touch, you know, this reigning evolutionary paradigm that certainly is, is dominant in biology today – um, we shouldn't be surprised because this is just exactly what leading historian of scientists say is supposed to happen when you challenge the main um, evolutionary view that is out there, you know, in or the main uh, paradigm in some scientific field. And so um, I don't think we should be so surprised that this is such a controversial topic. Now, one of the things my heart is to try to diffuse this controversy a little bit, you know, and to try to take some of the heat out of it and bring more light to it. Um, I do believe that this is a topic where reasonable people can disagree. I don't think that my my friends and, and folks that I've known over the years who come from an evolutionary perspective, I don't think they're crazy. Um, I think that they often have many good faith reasons for believing what they believe. And I'm for the, the last thing I would do is to try to attack their characters, their integrity, their education, their knowledge, their, their intelligence, simply because they believe something that I happen to also disagree with. Um, and I believe that I hold my views also in good faith. I mean, I took spent a lot of time in school studying evolution. I have almost enough coursework in evolution to have a, a degree in the subject. So, you know, I've also done my homework. So, so I, I've got my right to hold my views as well. So what I hope this debate 
or this this sort of this topic can turn into is a serious scientific conversation rather than one where people are sort of at each other's throats or are attacking each other personally. Uh, far too often on the internet, it really devolves into that. Um, uh, some of your listeners may have seen the the Jim Tour Dave Farina debate that happened yeah. a few months ago, um, uh, back in May of 2023. Well, what happened? Look at the opening lectures, the opening statements of, of that debate. Um, you have Jim Tour, who spent the, his entire opening lecture talking about nothing but the science. Well, he started by actually giving a very nice gift to uh, Professor Dave, um, but he, you know, he spent the entire debate, or sorry, the, the entire opening statement saying nothing. But, you know, scientific critiques of the origin of life, talking about the science. And from the opening line, unfortunately, Dave Farina made it very clear that his goal, his reason for being there that night in that debate was to attack Professor Tour's character and to attack him personally and made it entirely about a personal attack upon Jim Tour. Now, of course, Professor Dave did get into the science eventually, and we can debate back and forth. But even when he talked about the science, the whole point was simply to attack Professor Jim Tour rather than to simply, you know, say, well, what, you know, in a very calm, serious, collected kind of way, what does the evidence really say? So I wish, you know, I, I feel bad for Jim Tour. I think that he, he withstood a lot of venom during that debate and he, he did the best he could to, you know, to sort of take, take these shots for an hour at his character. Sometimes he did get a little bit irritated, uh, but I don't know anybody who, who wouldn't get irritated if somebody was basically say, calling you a liar and a fraud, you know, for an hour and yeah. a half, uh, you know, nonstop basically. Um, but, but all that being said, you know, we need to move past these kinds of personal attacks in this debate and move towards a place where we can have serious scientific conversations. That's my heart for this debate. That's frankly why I started the Idea Club when I was a student at UC San Diego, was I wanted to create an environment, and this is actually part of our mission statement at that club, to create an environment where everybody felt comfortable to and to express their views in a warm, friendly environment, whatever their views might be. And we'd have serious conversations that got down to real issues rather than, you know, getting into the emotion of it. So that's that's yeah. my heart. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so with that, you know, it, it can just kind of become crazy. I couldn't finish the debate. I, I, I had to turn it off. I'm like, I just, I don't want to listen to this uh, anymore. Um, I'll find something else to, to, to dive down into the uh, research on the origin of life debate. Um, but, but what would you say? I, I and I, I speak mostly to Christian students, uh, but it's not only Christians that kind of are questioning or have uh, questions about uh, evolution. What would you say to like high school students who are sitting there? This is kind of being taught as maybe the only option. Uh, of what is the explanation for how we got here? Uh, should they engage the teacher? Should they not? Should they ask questions? Uh, wh what would be maybe your advice and what you've seen uh, on how to best uh, go at this as maybe a high school student? That's a really important question, Ryan. And let me just first say that that was my experience. I went to public schools from kindergarten through my master's degree, okay? So I know what public school kids are gonna experience when they study this topic. Uh, the vast majority of students in public schools, in the United States at least, are going to receive a pro-Darwin-only presentation of the evidence that basically censors any of the scientific evidence that challenges the evolutionary model, okay? That is unfortunately what you're going to experience. So the first thing you need to realize is you're gonna hear a lot of science that you might disagree with. And you're going to hear a lot of claims that frankly are challenged by the scientific evidence and by leading scientists in the mainstream scientific literature. What's literally going on, and I've, I've dealt with this because I've been engaged with public policy debates over teaching evolution in public schools since 2005. 
What is literally going on is we see that there are folks out there who want to actually censor. And I don't use that word lightly. They want to censor from students legitimate peer-reviewed scientific papers that challenge what is being taught in the textbooks about evolution. Okay, They do not want students to receive that scientific information, even though it's in peer-reviewed scientific journals, even though it's being articulated by you know mainstream scientists who have legitimate credentials. They want that information censored from students. And that might make you angry, you know, the fact that basically information is being withheld to you. So here's my response, okay, what to do. First of all, I was never the kind of student who went to class trying to rock the boat. I just was, it's just not my temperament. I don't, I wasn't the guy who went to class saying, I'm going to stump the teacher today. I'm going to raise my hand and answer the question <laughs> the teacher can't answer. That's just not my temperament. I went to class to learn whether I agreed or disagreed. I went to class to learn. Okay, I wanted to hear what the teacher had to say. I wanted to hear that perspective. And so I would encourage students to do the same, all right? To go to class to learn, to not be disruptive, not, not to be you know, a jerk to your teacher. Now, does that mean you can't ask questions? Maybe some students are bolder than I was. Well, that's okay. If you want to ask questions, you can ask questions. But make sure you do your homework first, okay? And make sure you know what you're talking about so that you are able to articulate you know, in a, in a reasonable way that's actually going to you know, be attractive to people. And the good news is that I don't think that that's very hard to do. It's not that hard to get educated on this topic. So my first piece of advice is don't be afraid to learn about evolution. Okay. Don't be afraid yeah. to learn evolution. And, and I really mean that. Uh, learn about evolution when you're given the opportunity. But my second advice, piece of advice is when you learn about evolution, don't just take everything you're saying that they're being taught for granted. Okay. Don't just swallow it hook, line, and think and sinker. Think for yourself. Use your brain. Spot assumptions in the arguments. Look for circular reasoning. Have they actually established that evolution occurred or are they assuming that evolution occurred? What is the actual raw data, the raw evidence actually saying? Does that necessitate you adopting an evolutionary model? And a great way to sort of think for yourself and to, you know, sort of think, you know, critically examine what's being taught is to go and read on your own time um, materials from credible people, credible scientists who have been critical of evolution and see what they have to say and then compare both, you know, what you're learning in the classroom to what other credible scientists are saying and see which is best, you know, see which holds up the best. All right. So you can make up your own mind at the end of the day, but make sure that you're also exposing yourself to alternative views that might not be what you're hearing in the classroom, okay? Because the classroom is almost for sure going to give you this pro-Darwin-only dogmatic take on evolution that's censoring evidence from you. So it's kind of, unfortunately, it's kind of up to you to get to self-educate on your own time. That's the bad news. The good news is, is that the internet has made this super easy over the last few years. Um, or you can, you know, people still read books, right? I think they do. Uh, there's some great books out there. So um, one of the books that I read when I was studying evolution in school, that, and I think it's still quite relevant, even though it was published in the year 2000, it's very relevant today even to what is still being taught in schools, is a book titled Icons of Evolution by Jonathan Wells. And look, the science of evolution hasn't changed all that much in the last uh, 20, 23 years. So I still highly recommend Icons of Evolution. If you want to learn about what the evidence really says about many of the common lines of evidence that are used to supposedly promote evolution in public schools, um, you read that book, Icons of Evolution by Jonathan Wells. Uh, there's also a lot of other great books out there. There's a textbook called Explore Evolution, which is basically a critique of the main lines of evidence 
that are used to support neo-Darwinism in public school, many public school biology textbooks. And so this, again, is a great way to get the other side of the story. Um, I also wrote a textbook that's great for uh, high school-age students or even college-age students. Um, we don't recommend it for use in a public school classroom because a Discovery Institute, we actually don't think that we should be pushing ID into public schools. But it's a great textbook if you want to learn about the topic on your own free time. It's titled Discovering Intelligent Design. Discovering Intelligent Design. So look, uh, if you've got time to read a couple books, Icons of Evolution, Explore Evolution, Discovering Intelligent Design, those are great places to start to learn about some of the evidence that might not be discussed in your biology course. You can also go online, uh, go to Discovery Institute's um, website. Our, our main ID website is just intelligentdesign.org. Um, but from there, you can get to a lot of our other websites like uh, evolutionnews.org um, or our podcast, ID the Future, or our YouTube channel. We have a lot of fantastic videos, including uh, very easy to follow animations, or lectures by scientists about the evidence. And so I highly recommend uh, going to our, our YouTube channel uh, for the Center for Science and Culture. Again, you can get these links if you go to uh, intelligentdesign.org, and there's all kinds of uh, resources there you can find. Yeah, wonderful. Now, kind of based on kind of you you saying that, I'm curious because you know when I sometimes speak to students, and depending on how much time I have to get into it, you know, I have like the super short, oversimplified answer, and then you know longer answers. Um, and I'm curious if what I'm saying is is actually true. Uh, I think it is, and you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong. Uh, but I say, you know, often when you look at the evidence that's being presented in in in, in curriculum. It's kind of like with the Jonathan Wells icons of evolution. You know, some of it is just simply false. Uh, it just has been proven to be incorrect or proven false, and it's still being taught as true. Uh, other types of evidence for evolution is just evidence for microevolution of small genetic changes within a species, like Darwin's finches, uh, mutating bacteria, peppered moths, that sort of thing. And I would say, look, I accept that evidence uh, that shows natural selection and genetic mutation. I believe those things all happen. It just doesn't point to a kind of a Darwinian macroevolution common ancestry. Uh, the third type of evidence would be like fossil structures, similar DNA, um, you know, homology, um, uh, not only apes and humans, but across living creatures. And then, you know, also, you know, biogeographical uh, evolution as well. And I would say, look, this can easily be explained by a common creator as well as a common ancestor. A common creator could make a similar, common ancestor make a similar. Now, which one makes the most sense? And so I'll kind of, you know, follow up with saying, I've never seen a piece of evidence that points only to evolution that could not just as easily or better be explained by a common creator uh, or intelligent designer. Uh, is, there, is that fair to say, or, or is there something that you've seen like, wow, no, that's a really good piece of evidence that is not better or just as easily explained by a designer? First of all, I think the summary that you just gave is fantastic, Ryan. Uh, when you look at the evidence, what do you see? You, Especially what's taught in public schools and in textbooks, you see either A, evidence that's just flat out wrong, B, evidence that, yeah, it is evidence for evolution, but it's microevolution. And the examples you gave, I agree 100%. Um, changes in finch beaks. You know, those finches on the Galapagos Islands, you might read in a textbook, oh, that new species have evolved. But when you actually look at the scientific literature, you, you, you learn that these different finch species can actually interbreed with each other. That means they're not actually separate species because the definition of a species is a reproductively isolated population. Okay. And that is not what you have with the Galapagos finches. So, um, so yeah, so exactly. This would be evidence of microevolution, small scale change 
within a species. And I fully accept that. So yeah, is there evidence for evolution? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, but the evidence that we have is what we would call evidence for small-scale change, microevolution. So I have no problem with acknowledging that there is evidence for evolution out there. What we don't see is evidence for the origin of fundamentally new types of organisms or fundamentally new uh, biological features. Um, Stephen Meyer likes to say that, you know, sort of at the micro level, where evolution really, where we draw the line, would be the origin of new folds in proteins. Because new protein folds represent a new fundamentally different type of structure at the biochemical level that can do something totally new. And there's been a lot of research done on the evolvability of protein folds, which makes it look like it's very difficult for these structures to evolve because protein folds tend to represent very, very rare sequences of amino acids. Proteins are basically long chains of amino acids that are then folded up into a very precise three-dimensional structure to do some important function in your body, okay? And it turns out that you have to have a very precise ordering of amino acids in many proteins in order to get a stable functional protein fold that can actually perform a function. So that precise ordering means that as soon as you start to incur lots of mutations, you're actually, you know, those mutations either are not going to change the fold, or if they start to change the fold, then you destroy the function. It can't work anymore. And so the kinds of mutations that you get in proteins don't tend to give you new folds. And evolving these new folds, these new shapes essentially, is something that would be very, very difficult to do because these, these, these uh, sequences that yield functional protein folds are very rare and isolated in sequence space. So anyway, um, the point of this is that I think that uh, there is, the evidence that we see for evolution is small scale. And whenever we talk about evolving fundamentally new structures, the evidence is not there. There's also the evidence that you mentioned, Ryan, which is the evidence which, you know, yeah, sure, maybe it could be explained by common ancestry, but it could also be explained by design. Uh, let me give a great example. Um, the structure of the arms of vertebrates or the, or the limbs of vertebrates. We have a very particular bone pattern in our arms and legs. And it turns out that that bone pattern is shared by many other kinds of vertebrates, whether we're talking about a whale or a bird or a bat or a dog or, or a monkey, that many different kinds of vertebrates have a similar sort of basic bone structure in their limbs. So an evolutionist interprets this as if it is evidence for homology, similarity that is the result of common ancestry. But an ID theorist, and, and that's, I'm not saying that's impossible. I mean, that is one possibility. But the question that we have to ask is, is that the only possibility? Are there other possible ways to explain why we have a similar bone structure in our arms besides you know, sharing a common ancestor with the common ancestor of other vertebrates? I would say yes, and that would be common design. It's also possible that we are designed based upon a common blueprint. And that's not just for arbitrary reasons. There are good functional reasons why a designer would reuse this bone structure over and over again in different types of organisms. It's because it's very versatile. It's very dexterous. It's very stable. It's very strong. It can be used for lots of different purposes. And so we can actually do studies on the bone structure in vertebrates and find that this is a very good design that actually makes sense to reuse in different organisms. And it's not just arbitrary, it actually is sort of a good rational design principle. And engineers do this all the time. Engineers will find a design that works and then they will reuse that design in different technologies. We see uh, wheels being used on both cars and airplanes. We see uh, keyboards being used on cell phones and tablets and laptops. We see in computer programming. I, I had to write 
many thousands of lines of code uh, during my PhD. I had to become a Python. I had to get into Python programming. And what we see in computer programming is that very frequently programmers will reuse coding modules that perform functions they need in different programs. And so in the same way, a designer who's functioning like a, you know, essentially like an, a good engineer will reuse parts that work, coding modules that work in different designs, in different systems. And that's exactly what we see in living organisms. So the similarities that we see in living organisms don't necessarily reflect common ancestry. That could be a possibility in, in many cases, but it's not the only possibility. And by the way, one last point on this. There are many examples where we see similarities between organisms that cannot be explained by common ancestry. Evolutionary biologists recognize this. They actually have a name for it. They call it convergence or convergent evolution. Whenever you see an evolutionary scientist appealing to convergent evolution, the reason they are doing that is because we have discovered similar traits between different organisms that cannot be explained by appealing to inheritance from a common ancestor, okay? That is the actual reason why conversion evolution is invoked in every single case, okay? Sometimes they will also invoke loss of traits to explain the lack of traits that cannot be explained uh, by inheritance from a common ancestor, okay? And convergence is ubiquitous. In fact, the the leading evolutionary biologist, no, no friend of ID, uh, Simon Conway Morris from the UK, uh, he has said in, in quite a few of his writings in his books, that convergence is quote unquote ubiquitous. Ubiquitous, of course, means everywhere, right? So literally, convergent evolution is all over the place in biology. There are so many traits that cannot be explained through appealing, you know, similar traits between different species that cannot be explained by appealing to a common ancestor. Um, a good example of this would be the eyes of cephalopods, uh, organisms like octopus or squid or cuttlefish. Uh, they have a very similar basic design to their eye to vertebrates. It's basically a camera eye. There are some differences, but the fundamental design of the cephalopod eye is very similar to the design of the vertebrate eye. Yet, we don't even know if the common ancestor of cephalopods and vertebrates we don't even know if it had an eye. We have no idea what its eye looked like. There's no reason to think that the common ancestor of mollusks and vertebrates, cephalopods are a type of mollusk, there's no reason to think that that common ancestor had a camera type eye. So what they have to invoke is convergent evolution, where just by chance, these two very, very different kinds of organisms stumbled upon a very similar design, a very similar structure, mm -hmm. and, and this is just by chance. Now, of course, you know Richard Dawkins will say, oh, well, this is evidence for natural selection because selection will shape things that are exposed to similar selection pressures in similar ways. Okay, fine. But, you know, you have to ask the question, you know, now if two things are similar, then that's evidence for common ancestry. But if they're, if they're similar and you can explain it by common ancestry, fine. If they're similar and you can't explain it by common ancestry, now that's just evidence for convergent evolution. So in what way are we actually saying that evolution is testable, right? If whether you can explain the similarity through common ancestry or not, either way now it's evidence for evolution. And I think this sort of puts evolution in an unfalsifiable uh, uh, position and really shows that the, the methodology that is used to infer common ancestry is based upon assumptions. So again, I, I keep saying my last point, but let me let me just say this, right? So, you know, getting back to thinking critically, when you're studying evolution in school and you're shown some uh, evolutionary tree, what uh, biologists call phylogenetic trees, okay? Ask the question, is that evolutionary tree raw data or is it a the result of a particular way of interpreting the data? that's based perhaps upon assumptions. What assumptions went in to that construction of that phylogenetic tree? 
I can tell you what assumptions went into the construction of that tree because they are admitted in the evolutionary literature. When evolutionary scientists construct phylogenetic trees, they assume their primary assumption is that similarity is the result of common ancestry, except for when it isn't, and then you have to invoke convergent evolution. But we'll put that aside for a second. They assume, and it's just an assumption, that biological similarity reflects common ancestry. They completely ignore and don't even think about the possibility of common design. And when there's evidence that doesn't fit the tree, they don't put, when, they, when they're basically, when there's similarity that can't be explained by common ancestry, they don't put common ancestry on the, on the table for falsification. They just invoke sort of secondary explanations like conversion evolution, or there's many other, uh, you know, what we call ad hoc epicycles, you know, auxiliary hypotheses that are invoked by evolutionary biologists to explain away data that doesn't fit into the evolutionary tree. Conversion evolution is just one of them. There's incomplete lineage sorting. There's horizontal gene transfer. There's uh, long branch attraction. I mean, I can go down the list. There's a bunch of different mechanisms that they will use. And sometimes they might be, you know, viable explanation. You know, who am I to say? All I'm saying is this. Common descent is not on the table for falsification. Because whenever the evidence doesn't fit with an evolutionary tree, they just invoke these auxiliary hypotheses to explain away why the data didn't fit with the predictions of common ancestry. Mm. But, you know, you study evolution, they're not going to say this to you. You've got to read books by Jonathan Wells, read books by Stephen Meyer, watch the videos, uh, read, watch lectures by Paul Nelson. He's very good at explaining this. I've got quite a few lectures out there. You've got to do your homework on your own to understand that a lot of evolutionary claims are based upon assumptions. And that those assumptions really don't hold up when, when you really test them. Yeah. yeah. And I'll be seeing Paul Nelson here in just a couple of weeks out at Summit Ministries. He'll be there uh, for this session instead of you since he'll be overseas. Um, you know, uh, you know, here, here's what I think is just fascinating is, is uh, man, there's such a short amount of time. Here, here's where I want to go with this, because there's one other aspect I wanted to touch on. And, and we mentioned in, in a high school student, right? It's like, hey, just just learn, just, just you know, ask questions and learn. Uh, what happens, though, when you get to maybe the college level? Uh, you're, you're you're someone, maybe a Christian, you know, and you believe in some sort of intelligent design. You're studying in the sciences. You're maybe a graduate student or even a professor. Uh, what sort of academic freedom is there then to actually do research and submit papers contrary to kind of that evolutionary paradigm? What kind of advice would you have? for those who are actually wanting to now put put their kind of foot in the game. You know, they want to get in the game. They want to start producing and researching stuff that is contrary to maybe what their school or the program that they're studying within uh, holds to. Yeah, sure. So, uh, Ryan, I mean, it's hard to give one size fits all answers to this because everybody's in a different place and yeah. every department is different. Uh, but I will say that in general, we have unfortunately experienced and observed that if you are an ID-friendly scientist or, or a student or a whether you're an undergraduate or graduate student or maybe you're a, a postdoc or a junior faculty member who's not tenured yet, even if you're tenured, that there are risks to your academic freedom if you openly support intelligent design or sort of critique the, the standard evolutionary view. Um, and this is really unfortunate because it means that, you know, basically – you have to keep your head down and keep your mouth shut and you're not allowed to actually you know, ask hard questions. You're not allowed to actually you know, express your views or do research openly that might challenge evolution or support intelligent design. We deal with this all the time. I mean, in my, part of my job is actually to provide uh, you know, help with defending scientists who are experiencing this persecution and, uh, and lack of academic freedom because of their support for intelligent design. So my advice to folks in this situation is, number one, to keep your heads down. Number two, to uh, 
find like-minded people who maybe think the way you do. So you don't feel isolated. You don't feel like you're all alone. And there are a lot of great folks in the ID community who uh, do think like you do. And many of them have their own sort of unfortunate, you know, persecution, suffering type experiences to share. So you'll be in good company with people who understand what you might be going through. A great way to do that, especially if you are a student, whether um, undergraduate, graduate student, or even recent uh, graduate, is to attend uh, Discovery Institute's summer seminar on intelligent design. We have a great uh, program for students to come and learn about ID um, from some of the top scientists in the field. And uh, you'll also get connected to a much larger network of, of people who uh, sort of share your views. So, uh, and so you know, reach out to us at Discovery Institute if you uh, are finding yourself caught up in an academic freedom situation. We've got a lot of experience helping people. I, I wish I, we didn't have so much experience, but we do have a lot of experience helping people in those situations. And we can help you, you know, think through what the right thing to do is um, and, and how to basically survive uh, in academia as an ID proponent. Yeah, no, that's so helpful. And I think that's, you know, uh, there's, there's, there, I, I've sensed a hesitation from students as I was a high school teacher for 12 years. Uh, and I've spoken at conferences on science and faith and had students come to me. And it's like, but, but can I go into the sciences as a Christian? Like, like, can I even do that? Um, because they often hear things like, you know, I have a quote from Dawkins. It's like, you cannot, or I forget, maybe it was Sam, Sam Harris, but you, you cannot be a scientist and a Christian at the same time. You know, you kind of got to pick. And that's my story in kind of entering into uh, doing apologetic speaking. I was wanting to get into speaking and I had a youth group approach me and say, hey, can you speak on the topic of science and faith? Because we had a student that just graduated, went off to freshman year of college, came back at Christmas break one semester and said, you can't be a Christian and a scientist at the same time. I'm choosing science. I'm leaving the church and told that to all the youth group kids. And they were like shocked, like, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? Uh, and so it's just so common to have this hesitation, this this uh, uneasiness of wanting to go into the sciences. But I, I think that the, the Discovery Institute provides so many resources for students uh, to me, encourage me, them to go into that. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Th thanks so much for what you just said, Ryan. And let me just say, you you can be a Christian in the sciences. Okay. Yeah. You can even be a Christian who, ha I mean, if you're a theistic evolutionist, by the way, you're going to catch almost no flack because basically they tolerate you quite happily if you pose no threat to their, uh, you know, their creation story. Yeah. So, uh, so, and I, yeah, I'm not here to, I understand that even my uh, friends in the Christian uh, community who are theistic evolutionists, they do face some of their own challenges as a Christian in the scientific community, but it's a lot easier. I'll just tell you that. Okay. Yeah. But even if you're a Darwin skeptic or an ID proponent, and I say this because I have friends who are theistic evolutionists who have told me this, you know, it's so much easier, it'd be so much harder if I was a, a, an ID proponent. And so, you know, that might even factor in sometimes to why they take that view. But that aside, um, I think that if you are a supporter of ID, it is possible to be a scientist in the mainstream scientific community. Um, but, you know, I think you need to also find friends who think the way you do. It's going to be a lot easier and you're also going to get a lot of advice as to sort of how to, you know, be, be a, 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 an undercover or in the closet ID proponent um, and then knowing when it's the right time to come out of the closet. Uh, get good advice and surround yourself with people who have a lot of experience. But it's very possible I, if you love science and you're a Christian, don't be discouraged, okay? Yep. Um, and find other people who, who are like, there's a lot of Christians in the sciences. Find other people who think like you, or if you're a theist of any background, you know, whatever your background is, don't be discouraged. And know that there's a lot of other people like you in the sciences. Yeah. 
Appreciate it. That is a wonderful encouragement there at the end. And so thank you, Casey, so much for taking this time after COVID right before your trip. It's a crazy moment, but thank you for taking this time to help uh, all of those listening and watching understand intelligent design and how to come up, against, come up against some of the cultural challenges to holding an intelligent design perspective today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ryan. It was fun. All right, everybody, I hope this is such an encouragement and a blessing to you and equipping you to engage the culture well and engage these ideas of science and faith. Again, let me recommend this book, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, co-edited by William Dempsey, Casey Luskin, and Joseph Holdham. I am in conversation with other contributors to this book to discuss their chapters uh, and, and, and tackle more issues, science and faith. So if you have other questions on this topic that you want to see discussed, uh, let me know, send me a message. Um, otherwise, um, again, I'm going to be taking about two weeks off as I head off to Summit Ministry and serve on faculty there. Uh, there won't be videos coming, but I have a schedule uh, for the end of August and September and into October already. So you can check that out and see my schedule at think-well.org. You can see the, the wealth of other videos that are going to pop up right over here to engage other ideas relevant to the Christian faith and continue to help you think well about Christianity and in cultural engagement. And so continue to think deeply about these things. Think about God, Christianity, and Jesus because they are worth thinking about. See you next time, everybody. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye.